September 11th, 2001, the course of American history was suddenly changed. We remember the chaos and the confusion, the destruction and the heartbreak, the shock of 3,000 lives lost in a single day. But we also remember the great resolve of everyday people, the acts of heroism that brought us together, the men and women who stood in the gap, somehow still fighting, giving every ounce of strength to help others. Decades have passed since that historic day, and in that time, we have learned that despite all the suffering and loss, our God remains faithful. Even when smoke and debris obscure our paths, His unfailing love will carry us through. As we remember those who were lost, let us honor their memory with our lives, giving our own strength to help the hurting making sacrifices for those around us, and sharing the faith which brings eternal hope and peace. This is our promise and our prayer for 9-11. Lessons from Ground Zero. When an event happens that's unexpected, sudden, or shocking, it's not only uncommon for us to remember the details of the event, but we will remember where we were when that event took place. For example, people who were alive during the 1940s, not only do they remember the attack of Pearl Harbor, but they remember where they were when they got the news. Another example, people who were alive during the 1960s, not only do they remember the assassination of President Kennedy, they remember exactly where they were when they heard about it. Another example, people who were alive during the 1980s remember the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. But like all the others, you remember where you were when you got the news. In 2001, we remember not only the news of the aircraft flying into the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and the field in Pennsylvania. I bet each one of you, within the sound of my voice, can tell me exactly where you were as you follow the events of that awful day. Where were you? Maybe you're in your car driving to work, listening to the radio. Perhaps you're in your workplace already, or maybe in the kitchen, or a restaurant, or taking your kids to school, or perhaps you're in school yourself. It's a place that you'll never forget, because that place is where you got the news. While that place will not compare to the hallow respect we give to Ground Zero, the location of the Twin Towers, where they were in New York City, in a sense, though, 
where you were that day is your own personal ground zero. To some degree, ground zero happens every day. Now, not on the same scale as 9-11, but what I mean by that is this. Every day there's someone's life that is shattered and devastated. Every day someone is told that his or her loved one has not survived. Every day people must abruptly face an uncertain future. Every day tragedy touches someone's life, and therefore any place can be, quote, ground zero, end of quote. And in Luke chapter 13, there is a story we do not often visit about a ground zero place. Look back in verse 1. Now, the context of this is Jesus has been teaching. You go up to chapter 12 and 11, you'll see Jesus is talking to many people. There's a lot of people standing around, people asking questions. And then in chapter 13, verse 1, Luke tells us, Now on the same occasion there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed or mingled with their sacrifices. These Galileans, what he means by that, people from Galilee went to the temple and they were sacrificing. But apparently they were killed, they were murdered. This had to take place within the temple of Jerusalem. Now, who would have expected that? In an act of worship, these Galileans would have been struck down. After all, the temple should be a safe place, correct? You would think so. Even they were not safe from tragedy. Likewise, who would have thought on that clear Tuesday morning, people going to the airport, dropping loved ones off, people getting to their gate and boarding that aircraft, people going to work, which find their day to take such an unexpected turn. Which leads us to lesson number one. Life is unsecure and uncertain. Skyscrapers crash and so do stock markets. Rebels attack and children rebel. Bodies get broken and so do relationships. Our health declines and marriages fail. Ground zero brings us to the places where we see how little we really are in control. We're confronted with acts of violence. We feel the trauma of floods and tornadoes. We grieve the pain of divorce. We watch helplessly when our grandchildren and children make rebellious decisions. None of us in this room, within the sound of my voice, even can truly say, well, with certainty where you will be 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now. You do not know if you'll be prosperous or poor, if you'll be honored or despised. You do not know if you have many friends or you'll just have a few friends. The point is, the world faces uncertain days and always has. Let me remind you of Proverbs chapter 27, verse 1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day might bring forth. May I encourage you, even now, I know it's not the invitation time, but if God's laying something on your heart now, don't put it off to tomorrow. Tomorrow may never come. Which leads me to James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, that says, Come now, 
you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. And said you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. I have a bad habit of telling people, hey, I'll see you tomorrow, I'll see you next week. How do I know I will see them next week? I don't. The future is the future. The past is the past. We call this the present because that's exactly what it is. It is a present. Do not put off to tomorrow, dearly beloved, what you can take care of today. I cannot stress that enough. Now, these two events can't really be compared, but not only do we have 9-11, but recently we had an event that remind us of the same thing, did we not, called COVID? That demonstrated once again how fragile and how quickly things can change. With the flip of the switch, we just stopped as a nation and as a people. One Sunday I had a bunch of people sitting here, we were worshiping, the next Sunday, everybody gone. Not to even mention the many who lost their lives during that pandemic. Which leads us to number, lesson number two, evil is real. Now in the context of our story, it is clear that the bloodshed that was made was a deliberate order by Pilate. He caused it. Now the aftermath of a tornado and an earthquake is tragic, but it's not necessarily evil. The challenge of health issues are formidable, but not necessarily evil. However, the tragedies caused by human decisions bring their own unique pain. The pictures of the airplanes that day, the buildings collapsing, along with the knowledge that the cause of it was a deliberate act to kill and destroy, defenses us that evil does exist. Such sinister acts like these remind us of the reality of evil. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is deliberately sick. Who can understand it? Or as a New Living Translation, who really knows how bad it is? Gentlemen, ladies, we have to guard our hearts. It's like when I have company over. Now, I know everybody's guilty of this. Company comes in unexpectedly, knock out the door. <gasps> it's Brother Larry. The house is a mess. We'll let him in the living room, we'll straighten up, but don't let him go anywhere else. And we'll forever say, don't let him in the bathroom. <laughs> and of course, I often for something drink and eventually have to use the bathroom. But you, you all been there, correct? We do the same thing with our hearts. Lord Jesus, come save me. I put my faith in you. And we let him in, but we start boarding off walls and doors we don't want him to enter oh geez you can come in here in the living room but don't go in the kitchen whatever you do, don't go in my bedroom and he says no and he stands and he just knocks gently see he wants all of it and i tell people all the time god doesn't want your money he doesn't necessarily want your time what he's after is your heart 
Because if he gets your heart, everything else will follow. The evil is real, but evil does not have the last word. And we've been reading about that in the book of Revelation recently. Evil can be overcome. Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. Never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't worry about the day of reckoning. It's coming. Remember what we've been talking about as we're walking through the book of Revelation. Let the Lord handle it. Jesus demonstrated this for us as he stood there before the crowd after being scourged almost to death. Pilate looks at him and says, I have the power to set you free or to take your life. And he says, you only have that authority by the one who's above. Jesus knew God would straighten everything out in the end. That by doing the Father's will, that his name would be above all other names. We have to remember that it's easy when someone does something bad to you, you want to retaliate, do something back, but that's not what we're told to do. Now, I'm not saying or suggesting you be a, a doormat per se. But remember, no matter what people say about you or what you say about other people, when we stand before the Lord that day, you'll have to give account for your own conduct, your own behavior. You cannot justify your behavior, what you do, based on the behavior of somebody else. It does not work. And yet, here in America, we do it. Well, yeah, I did that, but so-and-so did that, and that's a lot worse. It doesn't work like that. Sin is sin in the eyes of God. Yes, there are different consequences we may have to pay. But we're so busy in our country pointing the finger at each other, trying to blame each other for something going wrong, rather than going to the root of the problem, which is sin, which is only Jesus can take care of for us. Which leads us to lesson number three. God is good. He is our refuge and strength. Now, the first two points, life is uncertain and the reality of evil, we accept those quite easily because we see them and we experience them right here and now. But this particular one, we have to take in faith. God is good. Psalm 46, verses 1 and 2. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. I encourage you to read the rest of the psalm, but for time purpose, I'm not going to. But just in those first two verses, notice the scale and intensity of the trouble. Though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. Certainly, these are ground zero tragedies, but God is still there. He is still present. Now I confess I do not understand why tragic and heartbreaking things happen. But I cling to the promise that in the midst of evil, God is present and God is good and God's goodness can be trusted. Even when we don't understand the pain that we are experiencing. 
which leads us to number four, lesson four, hope is available. God doesn't offer us understanding. He offers something greater, which is hope. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That's speaking to believers. How many believers, how many Christians, how many disciples of Christ do we have in the house this morning? Say amen. Now, say it like you mean it. If God is for you, who can be against you? If he let his son die for you, did hold nothing back, then how much more will he freely give to you? That's a promise we can stand on. You may feel like you've been forgotten by family and friends. You may feel like your enemies have the upper hand on you. It may seem like the world is against you, but God is for you. Therefore, we can have hope, and hope makes all the difference in the world. When my mama died, it hurt, still does. But in the midst of my pain and my suffering and my tears, I have hope. Not based on anything she did or anything I did. Based on the fact she had faith in Jesus Christ. Based on his act, what he did on the cross. Based on the fact she repented of her sins and confessed his name. I know without a shadow of a doubt that I will see her again one day and she will not be racked with cancer anymore. And many of you have had the same experience. And people may ask you, how can you get through it? You share that hope that you have. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You know, in that culture of the day, they had arranged marriages. They didn't have big stores like grocery stores and super Walmarts. They, they grew everything they ate. They had animals they would slaughter to eat. But they didn't have a lot of meat. That was special. When someone to offer you meat, that's, that's taking a lot of good stuff away from them. But the parents would meet. And the two would meet, and one would have a son, and one would have a daughter, and they would agree on a price. Because now that family is losing that daughter, she will not be a hand to help around with all the chores. And at that time and purpose, when they shook hands and agreed, for all intents and purposes, that couple was married. What would the son do? He would go back to his dad's house, and he would add on some rooms for him and his bride could have to call their own. The bride would go back, and she would wait for the groom. And there would be a bunch of young ladies, perhaps already been betrothed to somebody, and they're all wondering, is today the day my groom will come get me? You can imagine the anticipation as a young man walked into the village. They'd be looking, going, is that mine? Is that mine? And he would come and take him back to the place he's prepared. And they would consummate the marriage, and they would have a huge celebration for seven days. 
Can you see the picture Jesus is painting here? Who's the bride? We are the church. He's off right now preparing a place for us. So that one day he will come get us and take him with us so we can be where he's at. What a beautiful picture that is. And just like those young ladies would not know the day or the hour their groom would come back, we're the same way. We've been purchased. The price has been paid. All we're waiting on for him to come back and get us. We always have to be ready because at any moment, any time, he may call us home. We cannot always choose what happens, but we can choose our responses. With that, look at verse 2. And he said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Verse 3, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you all likewise perish. There's a choice here to consider the victims as sinners getting what they deserve, or you can choose to use a strategy to move you toward repentance. Repentance means to change or to turn to God. Jesus takes this story and twists it around and talks about repentance. Which leads us to lesson number five. We have a choice. You have a choice. When a tragedy strikes on such magnitude as it did 21 years ago today, we have a choice. We can choose to change our relationship with God. We can choose to deepen our trust in Him in the midst of uncertain and sometimes a frightening world. We saw that happen to some degree, did we not? The following Sunday, houses of worship across this land were full. It was like a great wake-up call. But sadly, tragically, we've forgotten. We've forgotten about what happened that day. How we felt about embracing the most important things in life. And how precious life is. You see, 2 Peter 3, 9, I have to make this very clear. Listen, listen to it. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. Just because God has not acted yet doesn't mean he cannot act or will not act. He's patient. But is patient towards you, long-suffering. How do you describe the patience of God? I can't think of an English word that really captures the patience of God. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God doesn't want anyone to perish. Spend eternity without him. He wants everybody to come to repentance. John 3.16, I know you know that one. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loved the world. He loved the cosmos. He loved the universe. He loved you. So much that he sent his son that whoever places faith in him would never have, well, not perish, but have everlasting life. The reason God has not acted and sent his son back again, the great and terrible day of the Lord, is because he is patient. 
wanting all to come to repentance. It took me a while to find this, but I found a part of Billy Graham's message at the Nassau Cathedral just a few days after the events of 9-11. Listen to what he says, quote, We have a choice whether to implode and disintegrate emotionally and spiritually as a people and a nation, or whether to choose to become stronger through all of the struggle, to rebuild on a solid foundation. I believe that we're in the process of starting to rebuild on that foundation. That foundation is our trust in God, end of quote. Have we forgotten what should be our true foundation? Now, verses 4 and 5, Jesus brings up another event that would be fresh in his audience's mind. Look, he says in verse 4, Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits or were they more sinful, moral guilty, or literally debtors than all the men who live in Jerusalem? You'll see a picture of the Tower of Siloam coming up on the screen. You'll see a map of Jerusalem, probably part of Jerusalem's wall. Now north is to your right. So the city is still looking like north up here. It's turned on its side to the right. So you can see where the temple is. You see the court of the Gentiles. You see the portico. You go down to the lower city, and you see the pool of Siloam. That tower was somewhere in there, part of the wall. And there's an incident where that wall fell, and as it fell, it killed 18 people. So Jesus is asking them, okay, you're talking about these people that were killed in the Temple Mount. Let me ask you a question. How about these people that were killed when the tower fell? And by the way, it is that pool of Siloam that a blind man was healed. You can read about that in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. It was a spring-fed pool. I'm not going to re- read verse 5, but look, look, at your, look at your Bible. Verse 5 gives the same response as we find back in verse 3, word for word. Jesus is warning his audience not to assume the victims of these tragedies, the massacre, the massacre on the Temple Mount, the collapse of the tower in Siloam, had been judged for the great evil. And it's a temptation to assign sudden, unexplainable deaths to the judgment of God in response to a secret or open sin. I'm going to say this in passing. If you want to know, I'll talk to you afterwards. But I I remember very vividly how some men stood in the pulpit and said that 9-11 was God's judgment upon America for our sin, specifically abortion. Okay, I understand where you're coming from. But is that what really happened that day? Or was it simply evil in those men's hearts that drove those planes and those buildings that day? That's all I'm saying. But nevertheless, look what Jesus does with it. Whether it's a man-made tragedy, as we read in our text, Pilate slaughter of the Galileans, or natural cause tragedy, the tower falling in Siloam, it is wrong to assume that the victims are somehow worse sinners than anyone else, and they deserve to die. What does Jesus tell them to do? Look back in the text. Quit assuming that, that they are worse and they, des- they got what they deserve. What does he say? But unless you repent, Jesus makes the point that everyone needs to repent. That's the point that he's making. Don't be worried about 
the sin of all these people, what they could or could not have done. Don't worry about that. Instead, focus on yourself. And realize that everyone needs to repent. I said this earlier, but another way of saying it, repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. I was chasing the things of the world, and I was going after all these things, but then Christ came in my life and saved me. I turned direction, now I'm chasing after the things of God. The problem we have here in America, we want one foot in the world and one foot in Christianity. It doesn't work like that. What does the Bible tell us? Focus on what's above. Think on those things that are instead of chasing things of the world. Jesus highlights the importance of repentance twice in this passage. Verse 3 and verse 5. Rather than assigning wickedness to those who were killed, examine your own heart. Let God examine your heart. And overall, Jesus negates four assumptions that people often make. This is true in the ancient world, and it may be true some degree in our world today. Four assumptions that people often make. Number one, suffering is proportional to sinfulness. Just because you're experiencing suffering doesn't mean that you've done something to make God mad. Now he's punishing you. Tragedy is a sure sign of God's judgment. Oh, you must have done something. Job had those kinds of friends. You ever read the book of Job? He had three good friends. I don't know how good they were after what they said to him. They kept telling him, what did you do? What did you do? I've done nothing. I'm paraphrasing here. Well, you must have done something. See, Job and his friends did not know about the conversation we're told about back in Job chapter 1 when God asked Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, well, you let me take everything from him. He'll curse you and die. Then he talks about himself. He loses all his family, loses everything. The assumption that people often make bad things happen to only bad people, that's not true. We have the right to make such judgments. This is not Tim's words. This is Jesus. Look in the text. What does he say about some, such assumptions? Jesus says no. Look in your Bible. Jesus says no. Let's kind of wrap this up, shall we? Started by stating that to some degree, ground zero happens every day, although not on the same scale as 9-11. And we call that place where the Twin Towers were, ground zero, there in New York City. But what we mean by ground zero happens every day is simply that every day someone's life is shattered and devastated. You know, I've seen it so often times that we don't know what people are going through. You come across them in Walmart, even driving down the road. We have no idea what's going on or what's on their minds. And every day someone is told that his or her loved one did not survive. Every day, pre-pre-pre, a brother must face an uncertain future. Every day tragedy touches someone's life. Therefore, any place can really be a ground zero, depending on what's going on. And we identified five lessons that can be learned from this as you look at verses 1 through 3. Number one, life is insecure and uncertain. Number two, evil is real. Number three, God is good. Number four, hope is available. And number five, we have a choice. And we, look, we identified two more lessons, if you will, if we looked at a similar event that Jesus mentions in verses 4 and 5. And as we step back and look at all these verses in context, 
we must never assume victims of tragedies have been judged for their sin and that everyone needs to repent. The sudden death of anyone must never be an occasion for blame. Rather, it must be a time of self-reflection and self-examination. Funerals are hard. They're difficult. The pain, the suffering, the feel of loss. And it reminds us all that we are immortal. It should be a time of self-reflection and self-examination at those times. See, the bottom line is this. It doesn't matter what country you're from, what state, county, district, or providence, or city you're from. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, young or old. It doesn't matter whether you think of yourself as a sinner or a saint. It doesn't matter if you don't even talk about spiritual things. The fact is, you are under God's judgment unless you repent and have faith and put faith in Jesus Christ. Period. And as we look back and reflect upon the event that happened 21 years ago today, we must never forget what happened. Never. Keep the people in our prayers. And remember what God taught us through that time. May we take these lessons to heart and apply them to our, to our lives. Very quickly, I looked up the definition of hearing and listening in Webster's Dictionary. This is the definition of hearing. The process, function, or power or perceiving sound, specifically the special sense by which noises and tones are received as stimuli. In other words, you're sitting in a room, people are talking, you can't make anything, but you hear it. You're sensing the tones and people talking, but you're not paying attention to it. It's like a bunch of noise in one ear and out the other. However, the definition of listening, to pay attention to sound, to hear something with thoughtful attention, and to give consideration. So you're, you're not hearing anymore. Now you're listening. And you're paying very careful attention to what's being said. And you're giving it thoughtful attention. Careful to see and consider everything that's being said. Or you can say it this way, as the Bible does in James chapter 1, verses 22 and following. Prove yourselves doer of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. The summation, I look back on that day. The 21st anniversary is the day, of course. Have I forgotten everything God taught me on that day? Have I forgotten everything God has taught me during COVID? Do you realize the Bible repeats itself many different times because no, we forget. God, through all these events, through all human history, has always proved himself to be faithful. He is our refuge and strength, our help in time of trouble. What is going on in your life right now? What's that huge obstacle that does, you just can't seem to overcome, can't, can't move it out of the way? 
well, you're right, you can't move it. When are you going to humble yourself and ask God, what must I do? God, I can't do this alone. That was me when I gave my life to Christ. I said, God, I, I'm tired of doing things my way. I fail miserably. Here, take it. I'm tired. I'm frustrated. You take it. And this is not just for people to come to faith in Christ, but this is for everybody. Perhaps you want to go pray with somebody. And it's true. If you haven't told somebody you love them, tell them today. If you haven't forgiven somebody, forgive them today before it's everlasting too late. Last statement. I imagine a man who's about my age now, I'm 54, was going to work that day. I wonder if his, his marriage kind of like mine, maybe says some bitter words to my wife if I leave the work. Not the best way. And now I find myself in a situation I know that I'm going to lose my life. I'm on that tower up on the 102nd floor. I can't get out. I try to call her, but I can't get to her because the air machine picks up. I'm not trying to draw on your emotions. I want you to look realistically at life. We take so much for granted, and I'm guilty of it too. When will we learn the lesson of what's most important in life? I implore you, encourage you, you respond as the Lord leads you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Even our darkest hours, pain and suffering, Lord, you are there walking with us. And at times, caring in us. Father, we are guilty of taking so much for granted. We assume so much. And yet, Lord, every good thing in life comes from your right hand. And you have provided a way for us to have everlasting life. And we may spend eternity with you. And at the time, we could care less, but in the time that we turn our backs on you, oh God, you sent your son. He took the punishment and the pain that I deserved. Because of a sacrifice. You don't see me. All my sin, you see me covered by the precious blood of the Lamb that washes all my sins away. Father, there's nothing I can do or attempt to do to pay you back but then give you my life and to tell others about the free gift I've been given. And Father, I pray for those within the sound of my voice Whatever it is. Father, I know that all of us have pains and struggles and obstacles in our lives. Father, grant them the courage and the boldness to, to let go and give it to you.
And Father, may your spirit continue to move. And may we be sensitive to it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me?